Uh, we are in Ruth chapter 4 today. Uh, in Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, this is the second to the last scene. And so I invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 4. You can view Ruth in eight scenes or eight episodes. Uh, this one is called the city gate scene. And it's framed by uh, two words in verses 1 and 2 and two words in verses 11 and 12. City gate and elders are mentioned in verses 1 and 2, and city uh, gate and elders are mentioned again in verses 11 and 12. And you're familiar with the book of Ruth. You can read it and picture the book of Ruth uh, as though it were like a made-for-TV uh, series or like a reenactment or a play that takes place in all these scenes. And there's a good reason for that. Uh, it was written, likely written, several hundred years after the events of Ruth took place in the time of the judges. There are a lot of clues for that. We see the narrator breaking in and explaining things that used to happen in Israel but don't happen anymore. At the very end of the book, which we'll get to next week, we have a full um, genealogy that ends with David. And, uh, and so obviously you can't write um, the book of Ruth uh, thinking forward four or five generations to who would come later. So it was likely written much later, um, but it's a, it's a wonderful book, a very compact book. We've already worked through the sojourn, the return, the arrival back to Bethlehem, the field, the meal, the threshing floor scene was last week, and uh, today is the city gate. So let's read together Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. The word says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. <clears throat> so Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. See how the narrator just breaks in and explains something that was no longer taking place in his day, but he explained it to the current audience, showing them what they used to do in the time of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Verse 8. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day 
that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Amar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We understand that it is by your word that you speak to your people and reveal yourself and make yourself known. It's my prayer that we would be, as the Bereans are described in Acts, that the things which they heard, they went home and studied the scriptures to make sure that those things they heard were actually so. I pray that for every hearer of the word today, that they would research and search the scriptures themselves as though they were diligently studying the scriptures to understand you more and to walk with you in intimacy. I pray that you would use your word today to speak to us and to change us and to transform us, that we may know you, that we may serve you, we may walk with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> we read in verse 1 that Boaz goes up to the gate and sits down there. Um, just a few hours before, as we learned last week, Boaz was at the threshing floor. He had uh, had dinner. He'd been working all day yesterday. Uh, he had dinner. The Bible says he ate and drank and his heart was merry. And uh, after he was just a uh, touch tipsy, maybe, uh, he went and found the end of his grain pile. The threshing floor was a place of a celebration of the harvest, but also a place of hard work. And, and many other farmers and, and harvesters would have been there as well. And so they slept there as a way of guarding their grain, but also as a, a working uh, time. They worked as long as they could, as hard as they could, slept there, and would have continued the work the very next day, continuing to harvest all of their grain. But we understand what happened from chapter 3, that, that um, Ruth came in the middle of the night, she laid down at his feet, uncovered his feet, and when he woke up, uh, maybe around midnight, behold, there was a woman there, and he said what any of us would have said, what are you doing here, right? Why are you here uncovering my feet, laying here? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant, and you remember what happened. They had this exchange, and uh, she asked him to redeem her. He said, I would, but there's another redeemer, a relative closer than me. But wait until tomorrow, and I'll make sure the issue is taken care of. So instead of staying at the harvest floor, at the threshing floor, verse 1 of chapter 4 tells us he ran up to the gate and sat down there. Now, I don't know about you, but on a normal weekday, 
I use my phone as my alarm, and I set to one, two, three, it's like seven, seven ten, seven twenty, seven thirty, seven forty, and I'll hit snooze and snooze and snooze, and I'll, I'll get up eventually. But but there are some times when I'm going to play golf or I'm going fishing, and and I don't even need an alarm, right? I just my head pops up off the pillow, and I'm ready to go. I'm so eager uh, to do it, the the thing that I'm looking forward to, and and oftentimes um, I don't even need an alarm for those occasions. I imagine that that was kind of like what uh, both. Boaz was doing on this particular day. Uh, he got up early, he went to the city gate, and he was eager to take care of business. Uh, Naomi had instructed Ruth, wait. At the end of chapter 3, he's not going to wait very long. It's going to be taken care of today. She knew it. And so first thing in the morning, Boaz goes up to the gate and he sits there. Now, when he gets there, uh, their cities were not like our cities. I think we're located in East Rock Hill Township. It's a very large township that's spread out. There are properties everywhere. Uh, same with uh, maybe Telford or Soderton or Sellersville, Perksy, wherever you live. Those towns are likely spread out, uh, maybe with a community center. But it wouldn't have been the same way um, there in Israel. Their cities were compact. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we visited Israel not too long ago, there was a hill. Uh, if you look out the window here, you can see up in this way a mound or a hill. Uh, our tour guide said, you see that hill? And we said, yeah, we see that hill. He said, it's not a hill, it's a tell. And we just said, well, what's a tell? And he said, a tell is a city that is an ancient city that has just been covered. And, but they were these large hills or these large mounds, and it was basically an uncovered or a, a, an un... Um, processed or dug up uh, archaeological site that over hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years, has just accumulated dirt and grass and, and it just looks like a big mound. It looks like a big hill, but it's actually a city that has just not been dug up yet. Um, that's what their cities were like. They were walled and people would have lived in close quarters. They would have done business in close quarters, uh, but most of the commerce and most of the fields and most of the activity would have taken place outside of the wall. And they would have had a city gate or maybe two if it was a big city. Uh, Jerusalem, I believe, had seven gates around a large walled area. And that was for protection. That was for security. And they would go in and out of the gates. And, and that's where... Uh, uh, business would have been done. And so the city gate was a combination of a town hall and a courthouse. And the way that it was ordered, if it was a good-sized city, it was a four-chamber gate. That meant that there was a large thoroughfare that went through, maybe spanning a distance of 15 to 40 feet. Uh, we walked through one in the ancient settlement of Dan. And as you walk through this long corridor, um, through the city wall, through the gate, you would have these side chambers. Uh, and a four-chamber gate was a good-sized city, and it had benches along those different chambers. And inside those chambers is where the elders of the city would have met, and they would have approved transactions. Uh, it was a place where justice was carried out. The Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer, wasn't just there to perpetuate the name of the dead and to marry a widow, but he was also there um, in, uh, uh, you, you remember the cities of refuge in the Old Testament? If one of your relatives got killed, um, then the person who killed one of your relatives could flee to a 
city of refuge. And it was the Redeemer's role also to chase down in this unusual foot race to chase down the murderer. And, and it, if he got into the city gate of the city of refuge before the, the kinsman Redeemer caught him, then he had the opportunity to stand trial within those city gates. But it was a place of business and civic leadership and the elders of the city would have approved or verified sales or transactions. All kinds of things would have taken place within there. And so Boaz, we find him early that morning, eager to settle the matter. So in verse 3, he sees the Redeemer. He's in one of those chambers, likely, and he's just got his eyes peeled. He's looking for uh, his closer relative, who is a closer relative to Naomi and a closer relative to Elimelech um, and to Malon and Kilion. And once he sees him, he says to the, that closer, nearer Redeemer, come inside, and he gathers the elders in one of the chambers, sit down here, and so they all sit down. And in verse 3, he says to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of all the people here. And if you will redeem it, great. If not, tell me because I'm next in line. And so the Redeemer says, I will redeem it. Now, I'm sure that's a kick in the gut to Boaz because he and Ruth um, have been together for this seven or eight weeks of the harvest. Remember, Naomi and Ruth came back at the beginning of the barley harvest at the end of March or the beginning of April, and then it went all the way through the wheat harvest, which was seven or eight weeks later. Uh, the Pentecost was 50 days after the beginning of the barley harvest to the end of the wheat harvest, and the spring harvest, uh, the Pentecost was the celebration of that. It was the feast of harvests. And so that has already happened. All those things have already taken place. Ruth and Boaz have had this kind of a budding relationship and she came to him at, uh, the night before and said, you know, I want you to redeem me. And the news that there was another redeemer um, was probably a letdown, a real disappointment. And on top of that, it's even <clears throat> more of a letdown now that this guy, the closer redeemer, says, I'll redeem it. So Boaz maybe has a setback here, but he has an ace in his pocket. Verse 5 says, Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. What does he mean, impair my own inheritance? Was this a selfish response? Was he already married? Did he have other children? It seems like he was willing to take on the field. That was not a stretch for him. Another field meant a greater harvest, meant more property, meant more money, meant a greater inheritance. And in exchange, all he would have had to do, as far as he understood, was help Naomi along as well. But then to take on Ruth was to perpetuate the name of his dead relative, Malon. In other words... The first and his child, Malon and Ruth and Naomi, would have then maintained those property rights. So he refuses. And his refusal opens the door for Boaz 
to step in as the Redeemer. And isn't that just like God? To providentially put an obstacle in the way only to remove the obstacle later. Chapter 3 ended with that cliffhanger. There's a nearer Redeemer, and he wanted the field, but not the woman. Boaz wanted the woman. He didn't care about the field, and, and this obstacle was removed. Have you ever had a situation in your life when you saw no way out? When you felt cornered by circumstances or by your own decisions or by the way in which things seem to have hedged you in to a position and you saw no way through that, God often puts his people in those situations so that we can learn to trust him, so that we can learn to walk with him. In Deuteronomy 8, it says that um, for 40 years, through the desert, and he said, all these years, your feet did not swell, your clothes did not wear out, and I fed you with manna, uh, and I showed you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Basically, Deuteronomy 8 says that all the way in which I led you all these years have taught you to walk with me, and to trust me, and to put your faith in me, and not to depend on yourself. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. But it's just like us to depend on ourselves and to lean on our own understanding and not to walk by faith. And so God often allows us to experience trials and difficulties to help us maintain our faith and our focus on him. Verse 7 says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel, and that's when the narrator breaks in and he, and he tells us what's, this, uh, what's going on about the sandal thing. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, the guy took off his sandal. What's this all about? You might remember in the presidency of George W. Bush, a few years ago in the Middle East at a press conference, a Middle Eastern journalist took off his shoe and threw it at G-Dub. Remember that? Uh, and he, he kind of dodged and didn't know what to make of it. But you've also maybe seen Jennifer Hudson on The Voice. Like she takes off her shoe and throws it at a contestant that she likes. What's going on with the one shoe thing? Uh, this week, I was at a wedding this weekend, and, and uh, Jeff Wooler said, um, Hey, what's with that verse you included in the newsletter, the email this week, Deuteronomy 25.10? How many of you guys caught that? And you read the end of the newsletter, and, and Deuteronomy 25.10 says, The name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Right? What's this all about? What are we talking about with the one shoe thing, and why is this included in our newsletter? Well, it, it was there on purpose. Um, I don't know how many of you caught it, but it wasn't random. So turn back a few chapters, a few books to Deuteronomy chapter 25. In Deuteronomy 25, we have the codification of leveret marriage. It went way before that. It extended way back even into Genesis 38 with Judah, his son Ur, his son Onan, his son Shelah, Tamar, there was this uh, idea of um, perpetuating the name of the dead way back in Genesis. But in Deuteronomy 25, it's written into the law. 
Verse 5, Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and shall pull the sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say to him, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And here's the curse. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. This is a shameful, humiliating thing. I can imagine in front of your house, if you have a little sign that says one shoe guy or one shoe family, like that's what this guy would have been known as, the one shoe guy, way back in Deuteronomy 25, way back in Genesis 38. This was a sinful justice issue. The closest redeemer was instructed to perpetuate the line of the dead. And it was sinful of him. If you turn back to um, Ruth chapter 4, it was sinful of him to not fulfill this righteous role in Israel. But what's interesting here is that... <clears throat> This guy, uh, he has no problem with it. Um, he, the, the first Redeemer, he just gladly, you know, willingly, just, he's like, take my shoe, right? I don't even care. Uh, I'm, he's, he's just thoroughly happy to remove his shoe. He, he completely goes beyond. He doesn't even let Ruth come spit in his face and shame him, slap him or whatever, and take his sandal. He just takes off his shoe. He, just doesn't, he doesn't even want anything to do with it. So, so he willingly um, takes the opportunity toward righteousness and, and doesn't fulfill that role. He gladly and willingly and eagerly chose shame and embarrassment rather than the cost of redemption. This isn't altogether unlike our enemy, the accuser. He also operates in shame, and guilt, accusation, and humiliation, willingly as a badge of pride, perpetuating shame and sin in opposition to the Word of God. Job 1.9, Job 2.5, Satan appears before God to accuse godly people. In Zechariah 3.1, Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. <clears throat> Revelation 12.10, at the end of times, 
It says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, the one who accuses them day and night before our God. He operates in shame and humiliation, taking on this same thing that the false redeemer does. He willingly took off his shoe and gladly said, I want nothing to do with the cost of redemption and righteousness. And he gladly owns the shame. I say that so that you can recognize the voice of the accuser. He also deals in shame and guilt and embarrassment and humiliation and accusation. Whereas God will convict us of our sin, but because of the cross, your guilt is removed. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 3.17 says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus came to remove sin and condemnation and guilt so that those who are in Christ Jesus have experienced the rightful Redeemer who took on the price of redemption on himself rather than the false Redeemer who operates in guilt and shame and accusation. Verse 9, back to Ruth. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, your witnesses, that I bought from the hand of Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. He's the only one who continues to mention the name of the dead, honoring them and fulfilling all of these righteous commandments. Verse 10, he also, uh, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife so that I may perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead might not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native, native place. You are witnesses this day. You see how Boaz is the righteous redeemer? Boaz is the righteous redeemer is presented all throughout the book of Ruth, always doing everything right. We'll get to a reason for that in a moment. Verse 11, then everyone who is at the gate and all the crowd that's gathering, all the spectators, all the elders, they all say, we are witnesses. And then they bless Boaz saying, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Who were Rachel and Leah? They were two women who were barren. Ruth is also barren up until this point. She had been married and she had no children. Rachel and Leah were also barren, but the Lord opened up their wombs for the promised line. Leah was the mother of Judah, and guess whose line Boaz is in? In the line of Judah, ancestors of the tribe of Boaz and Naomi. Through childbearing, they built up the house of Israel, and they perpetuated the name of the family of Jacob. That's who Rachel and Leah were. They built up the house of Israel. And so these people are blessing him, saying, may you be like Rachel and Leah. May Boaz and Ruth, may you perpetuate the name of godliness in our, uh, in our town in Bethlehem and in Ephrathah. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Verse 12, and may your house be like the house of Perez, 
whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Now, who was Perez and Tamar and Judah? I can't really, I mean, it's like a kind of a, you know, a bit rated R. I can't really go into it with this crowd. You're going to have to read it later. But basically, in Genesis 38, um, Judah um, had three sons. Uh, He had Ur, and he had Onan, and he had Shelah. Ur, he gave to um, Tamar to be his wife, and Ur died. And so in order to perpetuate his name, he gave Onan, and Onan was supposed to go and perform this leveret marriage duty, and let's just say he just didn't, he just didn't finish what he started. Uh, so then Shelah is the next one, and, and Judah doesn't give her, doesn't give him to Tamar, and so he sends her off as a widow. He says, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he was afraid that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went away and remained in her father's house as a widow for a long time, unprotected, uncared for. And years and years later, when Shelah is old enough to marry, Judah doesn't give her to him. So finally, through a long series of events that I can't really get into, in mixed company and, uh, and with children in the room, um, Perez is born, all right? And this is like a turning point for Judah. Judah declares at the end of this process, she is more righteous than I. Now, up until that point, Judah is a pretty salty dude, not really walking with the Lord, making questionable decisions, but this is a turning point for him. And for the rest of Genesis from 38 on, Judah is actually a stand-up guy making, uh, demonstrating godliness and sacrifice. But it, it was at this point, and so Tamar is a celebrated figure in the line of Bethlehem and Judah. And so they're giving him this blessing. May your house be like the house of Perez, who perpetuated strong leaders, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you from this young woman. So how can we close this passage? What in the world does this have to do with us? Right? We don't have leveret marriage. Um, none of us have multiple spouses, hopefully. Right? That's, that's not what the scripture is teaching us. That's not our point of application. Uh, by this time, he's having to explain it to the current audience when it was written because they weren't even doing this at that time. What I see when I look at this passage is I see a contrast of two redeemers. I see Boaz as the righteous redeemer, and I see this closer natural redeemer as a contrast between the two of them. There are two redeemers, one woman who needs to be redeemed. What's the first redeemer like? He's eager to redeem the field. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll take the field. It didn't cost him much, and it would mean a greater harvest. It would mean a benefit for him. It benefits him. It costs him little. So he's eager to redeem the field. He's willing and eager to take off his sandal when he finds out that this is actually going to cost him something. He's going to have to die to his own desires. He's going to have to take on another widow. He's going to have to perpetuate the name of his, of his dead relative. And so he, he embraces shame and humiliation as opposed to embracing the righteous path. This guy is passive. He never once approached Naomi or Ruth in any kind of a timely way. He's very passive. They've been around for eight or ten weeks maybe by this time. 
You would know it if one of your brothers or sisters or cousins or aunts or uncles, God forbid, if one of them were to pass away, you would know about it. You would hear, or somebody in your family would tell you, and you would check on your relative. This guy didn't do that. He didn't even seem to know about Naomi or Elimelech or Malon or Kilion until Boaz confronts him in the gate. He had, he had no, um, no sense of urgency, and he never took care of his family. He neglected his extended family. The whole time, we see Boaz giving of himself, providing grain, providing food, providing leftovers, providing a field, providing for protection for Ruth. He is constantly giving of himself, but this redeemer neglected his extended family. He demonstrates, this first redeemer, he demonstrates a strong desire to protect his own inheritance while showing no concern for two widows. This guy had um, the nerve to look at two widows and to say, I, I don't want to impair my own inheritance. He's never given a thing to these two widows. He's never taken care of them at all. His only concern is to protect himself. He never gives anything but his sandal. And he gives his sandal willingly and eagerly. He shows little knowledge or care for the law of God. Boaz had to remind him of the law of leveret marriage. Boaz is quoting scripture and verse that he's per- perpetuating the name of the dead. For, and he's quoting their names. He's, Boaz is to the letter of the law, but this guy shows little concern for the law of God. This first natural redeemer was unwilling and unable to redeem Ruth. And that reminds us a lot of this world and our culture and our sinful flesh and our natural man outside of Christ, prior to your conversion, you might have heard all kinds of ways for your life to mean something, to count for something, or for you to be saved, or for you to go to heaven when you die. The world will tell you things like this. All roads lead to God. All you have to do is just be sincere. It doesn't matter what religion you choose. Just choose any religion and God will sort it out at the end. That's, that's what this world will say, is that there are many roads to God, or there are many ways to be saved, or, or sometimes they don't just point outside, but they point to you individually and say, it, it only matters if you're sincere and if you're spiritual. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'm not very religious, but I'm very spiritual? It's basically another way of saying, I follow my own heart and my own path and my own gods. I, I've created all this and I, I've got this. I'm all I need, right? The power is within me. And if I just you know, sort of speak things into existence or speak positivity, then it will be attracted back to me. That's the world's message of salvation. You're good enough. You deserve the best. The power is within you. Or if it's not within you, it's in one of these religions and God will just come sort it out. Those are the ways of the world to be saved, and they're the false redeemers. But Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is exclusive. He doesn't open up any other opportunity for another redeemer. There's only one righteous redeemer in the book of Ruth. Boaz is a picture of the one righteous redeemer, Jesus. He was willing and able to redeem Ruth. He was willing to pay the price, great cost to himself. 
He was willing to sacrifice and take the loss so that Ruth and Naomi might experience a new life. Listen, Boaz wasn't perfect, but the author, by the Holy Spirit, always presents Boaz in the best light. And that's unusual for Scripture. Scripture is, is not shy to mention all the faults and flaws of you know, all the human people in Scripture. We're really quick to point out how they're messed up, but Boaz is not presented that way. There's not a thing wrong that Boaz does in the book of Ruth. He is, he is almost as though he is um, a shadow of someone greater. He is a, a, a type of some, someone to come. We shouldn't look to Boaz as the Redeemer, but we should look through him to see the ultimate Redeemer. Boaz is a shadow. He's a type. He's a limited and imperfect picture of Jesus, but he's a picture nonetheless. He is the righteous Redeemer willing to pay the price acting perfectly, sinlessly to redeem Ruth in the same way that Jesus was righteous, perfectly sinless in the face of temptation, sacrificing to provide salvation for us. Jesus humbled himself, became a servant, became willing, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This passage and Boaz should point us to the greater Redeemer. And in light of who Boaz is revealed to be, we don't elevate Boaz, but we see through him the one who is to come. All along the way, God has left these breadcrumbs, these signs, these um, pictures, these, um, these things that point to one day the Messiah who is coming. You see all these pictures of redemption all through the Old Testament. Someone once remarked that the Old Testament is like a room that is dimly lit, and the New Testament is like that same room, brightly lit, where you see all these pictures of Jesus all throughout the Old Testament fulfilled in the Gospels. You think about Abraham when he went to sacrifice his only son, his one and only son, on a three-day journey, and he puts the wood on his back, and he climbs Mount Moriah to sacrifice his one and only son, and what does he see in the thicket? A lamb caught in a thicket and he sacrifices the lamb in substitution for his only son. You see all of these types and shadows of what Jesus would be. So when you look at Boaz and when you look at all these types and shadows, when you get to Jesus, you recognize him. Peter said that the prophets searched long and hard for the scriptures so that when the Messiah was revealed, they could notice him. You see Anna and Simeon and Luke who were waiting at the temple for the consolation of Israel. And when they see Mary and, and Joseph bring this baby boy in, they, they say with great conviction, my eyes have seen the salvation of God in this baby. And they hold him up because they recognize from all these types and shadows. So how should we respond? We should respond in worship and in awe of the only worthy Redeemer, the righteous and holy one who died so that you and I might live to receive the grace and forgiveness and redemption of the righteous one who takes our place on the cross. And so Lord Jesus, we do see you here. We see you in this picture. We thank you that it's no stretch for us to see aspects of you made evident in this story of a Moabite woman who was far away, cut off from you and the people of promise, brought near 
by the blood and the death of her husband brought near through Naomi's repentance, brought near through the declaration that I will not leave you. Your people are now my people. Your God is now my God. And only in death, when death shall not even separate us, I shall even remain after death to be among your people. That in all these ways, we see an image of Jesus Christ written in the pages of Ruth. And we praise you for it. It's our prayer that we would exalt you and worship you in response. In Jesus' name, amen.